So when I wake up, I know kind of automatically that it's going to be a battle to go back to sleep. So I try not to think of that battle because it only kind of compounds on itself. And that's when I continue this kind of ball of stress and anxiety and, you know, keep clock watching. Okay, I've been awake for 10 minutes. Okay, it's 20 minutes. I need to sleep. And it just unfortunately oftentimes becomes this snowball effect where it continues to get worse and more stressful and more anxiety filled as the clock continues to tick away. UC Health presents the Every Podcast series. We're taking our signature health and wellness event celebrating all women and breaking it down into episodes where we'll speak with special guests as well as top experts on issues like insomnia, stress, relationships, life changes, and really just how to balance all that. It's going to be hosted by yeah, you're hearing me, Gloria Neal. And I am thrilled to be a part of this groundbreaking podcast. It's all about helping you live your best life physically as well as emotionally. Sleep at the best of times can be a struggle for many of us. Add in all the events of the past year on top of the usual life stressors, and it's a recipe for, well, a lot of sleepless nights. Some of us suffer from anxiety and even have trouble switching off our brain from thinking about all the things that took place during the day, while there are others who are out of sorts from being at home 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Either way, winding down at the end of the day and switching off our brains can be a challenge. Now, for others, falling asleep isn't the problem. It's waking up in the middle of the night. A few years ago, Ashley, a 30-year-old marketer from Boulder, started waking up in the middle of the night to use the restroom, and when she would go back to bed, it would take her about an hour to fall back asleep. She now wakes up every night to use the restroom, even though she's careful not to drink too much before bed, and every night, you guessed it, she continues to struggle to fall back asleep. Now, when asked what she does to, you know, try to prevent her sleeplessness, She said this. Certainly little things like for me, I think it's tied to the restroom, so not drinking water before bed. Um, But then a handful of different techniques, whether it's counting techniques, breathing, relaxation techniques. Um, But unfortunately, once I'm up, my mind just continues to go, 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 it seems like. Why does this happen? And what can the Ashleys of the world do? In the middle of the night, the key is not to start with bad habits. So when you wake up, the key is not reaching for your phone or your screens or eating or getting up and starting to do other things. If you're awake in bed for more than 20 minutes, get out of bed and do something calming um, and not stimulating. Reading, coloring, doing a Sudoku or an easy crossword puzzle. Um, Mindfulness apps and breathing techniques can also be very helpful. Things like white noise or calming music. Things that can allow your brain to focus on something but not be stimulated um, to the point that you're going to stay awake. Trying to avoid going onto your devices is particularly important because the blue light from electronics can cause arousal and really disrupts the circadian rhythm and will interfere with the melatonin production that helps you stay asleep. Who is that woman with that magnificent voice? That would be Dr. Katherine Green. She is the medical director of the Sleep Center at UC Health. Now, 
You've studied sleep for the past 10 years, and you work closely with patients to help them find solutions to their sleep problems. There seems to be a lot of information out there about sleep and how much it impacts our health and our well-being in ways I don't even think we've realized. Can you tell me more about some of the ways lack of sleep affects our health? It's kind of like a domino. Honestly, in medicine, we're still learning a lot about sleep. It's a really exciting and interesting and growing field. And all of these downstream health effects are one of the reasons why I was drawn to sleep as a practice within medicine. There's growing evidence to show that both sleep quality and quantity have really far-reaching effects on everything from driving safety to daytime energy levels to your focus and attention and kind of job performance performance, um, to even things like mood and being more irritable or being more prone to depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. There are now studies that show that insufficient sleep at night can affect other body systems. So we see effects on systems that regulate your metabolism, an increased predisposition to um, things like diabetes, and even long-term cardiovascular health effects, like an increased risk of um, hypertension and strokes and heart attacks. And then effects on the brain, so things that can cause long-term memory impairment or early cognitive decline. I know I don't usually get a lot of sleep, so I asked the expert, how much sleep do we actually need? So if you are requiring, you know, 10 or 11 hours of sleep at night, that oftentimes may be a sign that your body is not getting the restorative sleep at night that you need. And so it's oftentimes an indicator that there may be underlying sleep disorders or sleep factors. And what we see is that if you are requiring that much sleep at night, It may be that the negative health consequences associated with too little sleep are still present because your body is still not getting that good quality sleep that you need at night. Seven hours is really what's recommended. Most adults need that. Is there such a thing as getting too much sleep? Yeah, you know, actually there is. Certainly stress and anxiety are very big drivers of insomnia. And situational stress and personal stress, whether Mm -hmm. that's a short-term stress with an illness or a sick family member or a big job project coming up, um, certainly can impact your ability to fall asleep and the quality of sleep that you get. All of us have had a bad night of sleep or two. Yeah. And, you know, that's to be expected. Day to day, we're all going to have differences. But it's those environmental factors that play a role in how conducive your sleep and your sleep environment is. Mm-hmm. It's really important to make sure that your bedroom is cool and that you have an environment that's cool and dark to promote a lower body temperature at night while you're sleeping. Restricting your bed to sleep and sexual activity is a really good, healthy habit to maintain. Sleep is a very behaviorally driven process. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's ever had trouble falling asleep knows you can't think yourself to sleep. And so your circadian rhythm, the thing that drives those sleep and wake cycles, is really dependent on external and environmental cues. You know, when those mechanisms get out of whack, that's really when we see chronic insomnia start to snowball. There are so many processes that really only happen in our body 
during sleep. Memory, actually, memory consolidation is one of the biggest things that we see. Inside Out, the Pixar movie, they do a really good job of sort of representing what sleep is. Right. So, you know, there's the the consolidation from short-term storage to long-term storage. Mm-hmm. That's actually based on biology. I mean, Pixar got it right there. <laughs> um, that we know that memory consolidation, the things that you learn during the day are recalled more easily the next day and the day after if you have a good night of sleep after learning something new. Wow. And so the amount and the quality of sleep that teenagers get has a direct correlation to high school performance and to emotion. And we see that same process in adults. And they're processes that actually just don't happen um, when you're awake. They, they are part of your brain's architecture when you're sleeping. I know there have been a lot of sleep-related problems over the past year. So I asked Dr. Green, is there a connection Oh, boy. Uh, Yes, is the answer. So sleep problems have just gone through the roof in the last year. And I think some of it is really new, and some of it is that there are things that have been brought to light, probably longstanding issues that have come more to the surface. But I've seen this in my patients. I've also just seen this with family and friends. You know, as we already said a little bit, increased stress and anxiety within our society and with our within our day-to-day life impacts the likelihood that you will develop insomnia and some of these insomnia behaviors. And so certainly uh, to say that the last year has been stressful or anxiety-producing uh, would be an oversimplification. Yes, no question. <laughs> um, and so there's no question that these... You know, the the societal impacts and just, you know, the day-to-day worrying and struggling and isolation has increased our stress levels significantly. And certainly that plays a role in insomnia and sleep quality. And what I've seen with the transition to working from home is this upset to the daily routine. You know, you don't have the morning commute or the afternoon commute to disconnect work life from home life. And so all of a sudden you're answering emails a little bit later into the day. Yep. Or you're not going outside to go for a morning walk because all you have to do is go down from your bedroom to your dining room to start your day. Right. And so you're not getting as much natural sunlight in the morning or starting your day by going to the gym and being active. And when circadian rhythms are lost and when they're not as regular, I think that is one of the biggest driving factors for a disruption of sleep quality. So what are some other things we can do to help compensate for the changes in our routine, Catherine? There are a lot of things that we can do. Uh, Establishing a regular routine around sleep is very important. Try to go to bed and wake up at the same time every day. Regular exercise helps with sleep, too. Of course, avoiding caffeine in the afternoon helps and not drinking too much alcohol before bed because this also interferes with the quality of sleep that you get. Getting sun is really important and particularly morning sun exposure can help promote that wakefulness that keeps us alert throughout the day and ready to fall asleep at night. My guest is Dr. Katherine Green. She is the medical director of the Sleep Center at UC Health. So how much sunlight do we need? You talk about that morning sunlight. 
living in Denver, I have the joy of living in one of the sunniest places in the country. And so natural sunlight certainly is probably the most beneficial form of light. You know, in terms of uh, an actual amount, it's not so much the amount of light exposure that you get. The time of day definitely is important. Ideally, getting some uh, morning sun and some natural sunlight exposure within about an hour of waking up cues a lot of the wake-promoting agents in your brain and throughout your body to sort of start that circadian rhythm cycle and set that timer to wake. Right. And so getting that exposure in the morning is most important. I think part of that is also just if you're getting natural sun, it also means you're getting outside and you're getting some fresh air. And so there's probably some other benefits to that as well. So you talked about alcohol and caffeine yes. affecting our bodies. How long does caffeine stay in your system? Caffeine has a half-life that, that wears off over the course of time. To understand the impact of caffeine, I'm going to put on my like nerd glasses for a minute because you really have to understand two hormones in the body, melatonin and adenosine. Mm-hmm. And those are the two hormones that are really the two main drivers of our sleep and our wake cycle. They control your brain's uh, sort of drowsiness, your brain's tendency to, to fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Melatonin is the main driver of your ability to fall asleep and stay asleep. And so melatonin is a hormone that your body doesn't really produce at all during the day, your brain starts to produce melatonin a few hours before bed, and it increases to peak a few hours after bedtime, and then slowly dissipates throughout those morning hours so that by morning, your melatonin levels are very low, and that's one of the things that causes you to be ready to wake up. Adenosine is sort of the opposite of melatonin. So it naturally rises throughout the day as you burn energy and burn calories. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more adenosine you have in your system, the drowsier you are. The way caffeine works is that caffeine binds to the same receptors in the brain that adenosine does. And so when you have high levels of adenosine in your system and you're feeling really tired and groggy, what you can do if you have a little caffeine in your system, all of a sudden it blocks some of those receptors and sort of blunts that effect of the adenosine that's in your system. So you can kind of get a couple yeah. extra hours yeah. off of that sleep pressure <laughs> right. um, with, you know, some morning coffee. <laughs> there is a lot going on with this sleep thing. I mean, you just think that, you know what, I'm groggy at the same time and, you know, when I fall asleep... It is amazing how the melatonin and the adenosine, all of that works. And speaking of melatonin, Catherine, does taking store-bought melatonin to fall asleep, does that work? And is it safe to take on a regular basis? Yeah. Uh, In general, melatonin is a very safe supplement. It's really the same type of substance that your body is naturally producing. For some people, that can really help with sleep onset. Mm -hmm. For instance, if you're traveling halfway across the globe and you're going to be trying to fall asleep at what is your body's middle of the day, that's where taking some melatonin to sort of simulate that curve has really been shown to be very effective. So we've talked about caffeine. Let's talk about alcohol. Yeah. (laughs) What's the impact of alcohol and what does it do to our sleep? 
Yeah. So alcohol is nothing but bad news for sleep quality. Uh, <laughs> most people know that alcohol before bedtime does tend to make you groggy, right? Mm-hmm. Alcohol is pretty good at at knocking us out, right? Um, and so for people who are, I use the term self medicating, but you know, for people who are trying to find ways to overcome insomnia, I think that turning to things like over the counter sleeping aids or alcohol is a very common in practice because it feels like, oh man, you know, if I just have my glass of wine or two before bed, I really do fall asleep more easily. What we see with alcohol, though, is that there is a very negative impact on the quality of sleep that you get. It actually changes what we call your sleep architecture, how much light sleep or deep sleep you get. Mm -hmm. So what we see is that alcohol is really good at knocking you out. You feel like you get a hard two or three hours of sleep. Mm -hmm. But then what we see is that in the second half of the night, after about two or three hours, sleep is very, very fragmented and you have a lot of awake time. So I generally tell people, especially if you are prone to insomnia, I mean, everyone would benefit from this, but <laughs> especially if you are prone to insomnia or you have underlying sleep disorders like sleep apnea, trying to avoid alcohol within about three hours of bedtime prevents that process because it's really that about three hour mark. So have drinks before dinner or with dinner and skip the after dinner drinks because it really does uh, have a negative impact on the sleep following it. Up to 80% of people who have sleep apnea in this country are still undiagnosed. And it often goes undiagnosed in women more commonly than men. If you're going and doing all of the right things and you're not feeling refreshed by your sleep or you're having trouble staying asleep at night, you're finding that you're waking in the middle of the night for reasons that are unclear to you, then it's time to talk to your doctor and see if an evaluation for sleep apnea may be something uh, that would be right for you. There tends to be this stigma of sleep apnea since it's associated with middle-aged, overweight men who snore, but it really does appear across many different body types and in both men and women, and it can go undiagnosed in people who don't fit that stereotypic picture. My guest is Dr. Katherine Green, and she is talking all things sleep. She's also the medical director of the Sleep Center at UC Health. So women, that is that is so amazing. You talked about some of the causes, how we overcompensate, all of those things. But if you look at where we are with sleep, how do women talk themselves out of having a sleep problem. They'll say, oh, it's not insomnia. Oh, I don't have problems. How do you get them to realize this is very urgent? Yeah, I think that is really one of the challenges because with sleep, most of us are used to the sleep that we get. And you may say, you know, I feel a little bit tired, but doesn't everyone? It's easy to write off these problems and say, you know, I'm functioning okay. I'm doing just fine. The way that couples and bed partners can help each other is honestly, I think, 
just by identifying those things that they're noticing at night. A lot of the problems, particularly with sleep apnea, many of the things that are happening at night are things that the sleeper is probably relatively unaware of. Most people don't wake themselves up with their snoring. For women, that may mean asking your husband (laughs) or your wife, am I doing these things at night? I had a patient a couple of months ago who said, yeah, you know, I was in my acupuncturist's office and I fell asleep on the table. And she was the one that said, you know, you really snore when you're sleeping. And so then I went home and asked my husband and he was like, oh, yeah, you've done that for years. And she was like, well, why didn't you tell me? Right, right. Um, And so really just having a conversation about these things, right? If you're feeling like your sleep is not great or you're feeling like you're struggling, asking some of these questions of your bed partner um, is step one. (laughs) Yeah, and the main step. So Ashley, she shared her story earlier saying she uses counting and relaxation techniques to help her fall asleep. What do you think about what she is doing to really get that sleep rhythm down? So I think there's a lot of good evidence to show that things like guided breathing or mindfulness techniques, relaxation apps are all very beneficial in terms of helping promote both sleep onset, but also that sleep maintenance, being able to fall asleep more quickly and not fall into those cycles of unhealthy behaviors in the middle of the night. What about, Catherine, Technology. You know, you talk about um, tracking heart rate variability while sleeping. Should people be using this? Yeah, I think that tracking devices, certainly it's something that has increased exponentially over the last decade or so. If you look at the App Store, um, there are some really interesting statistics about how many new apps related to sleep are coming onto the market. Correct. App watches, the app phone, everything. Everything, right? I would say that overall, the main benefit that I have seen of tracking sleep or, you know, these apps that that kind of give you some some insights into your sleep um, is that what it does at the very least is is it makes you more mindful of your sleep. Oh, wow. I do think that there is benefit to using that technology to really help you prioritize sleep and bring it to the foreground. One of my favorite things, I was the napping child, right? <laughs> if I'm in school in kindergarten and the teacher said, let's take a nap, I was like, I like this woman. This is good. And so it's followed me into adulthood. I saw something on Denver 7 News a while back where you were interviewed and you talked about napping. 10 to 30 minutes, I think that's what you said. What's up with that? Because I'm thinking an hour nap is phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah. So what I call strategic napping is something that can be very helpful at improving your productivity and your focus. There have been good studies showing that people have an increase in their mental acuity after taking a short nap. But certainly there are some ways to kind of nap smartly, and that's where I talk about strategic napping. Avoiding naps later in the day is very important because what you don't want a nap to do is start to take away that ability to fall asleep later in the night. So it's like borrowing, but you don't ever get it back. Exactly. You borrow a little bit of time. Now, if you take a three-hour nap at 4 o'clock, I think most people are then going to find it really hard to fall asleep at 9 or 10 o'clock that night because your body says, you know, I got plenty of that just a few hours ago. And then is that the same effect but in reverse? 
reverse when you work out at 9 p.m., but then you're going to sleep at 11. It's like, why do they say don't work out late at night? Yeah. So a little bit of that has to do with that adrenaline, right? The ability of kind of, you know, revving yourself up or doing something really active before bed. Mm -hmm. The short answer is that with activity, I would still generally say that if the only time when you can exercise is at 9 p.m. at night, getting exercise is still beneficial for most people in terms of falling asleep. Right. There are some people who find that they're relatively uh, sensitive to working out at night. And if you are one of those people, then that's probably something you should avoid. (laughs) It probably actually has more to do with raising your core body temperature than anything else. Mm -hmm. So um, your core body temperature starts to drop as you are getting ready for bed. And your core body temperature is lowest at night while you're sleeping. And so for some people, elevating that core body temperature before bedtime can disrupt that whole melatonin curve and that ability to fall asleep at night. How does our sleep change as we age as women? (laughs) Yeah, so sleep, normal sleep does change as we age, right? Um, If you've ever watched a teenager sleep, you know that teenager sleep is not the same as sleep when you're 60. It's like they're still growing. (laughs) Exactly. So there are different um, processes that are necessary during sleep. And so we know that the total time that you need changes. Our circadian rhythm actually changes a little bit as we age too. So teenagers are night owls and that's normal, right? So teenagers, many teenagers would preferentially sleep from, you know, 2 a.m. to Uh, to noon. That's right. Um, Whereas a lot of, as we age, our circadian rhythm tends to shift to earlier. You get less deep sleep as we age, and that's normal. So we see a decrease in the percentage of deep or slow wave sleep as we get older. Deep and slow wave sleep is the type of sleep that helps most with memory consolidation. And so there are some theories as to maybe why that's our that's why our memory kind of normally changes with age. Mm-hmm. Um, menopause, and particularly with women, we know that menopause uh, really does have impacts on the sleep that we get. And that was going to ask you about the big M. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the gift that keeps on A giving. giving. I'm yep. trying to tell you. So one UC Health patient who had never had any problem sleeping has shared that in her late 40s, she started to experience insomnia every month once she started having perimenopause symptoms. Is there a connection? Yeah, there absolutely is a connection. So we see that there are multiple ways that menopause can have um, effects on sleep. Certainly, the hormonal changes in and of themselves and some of the other effects that we see with menopause, things like hot flashes, are things that can cause disruption of sleep um, just in and of themselves as a secondary effect. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, what we see and what we are still learning more about is we know there is a huge increase in sleep apnea around the time of menopause. Mm. So whereas middle-aged men are about four times as likely to have sleep apnea as women, 
after menopause, we see that that incidence is actually one-to-one, so just as likely. And so some of these, and again, if we go back to the idea that a lot of women have more atypical presentations of sleep apnea, I think some of the insomnia that can come along with menopause is something that really sleep apnea should be something that's on all of our radars. If I see a woman in clinic who comes to me and says, you know, I used to be a great sleeper, but since starting menopause, I find that I'm waking up in the middle of the night. I'm more tired during the day. I feel like sleep isn't as refreshing for me as I used to. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is always something that we want to screen for those underlying sleep disorders like sleep apnea and make sure that that's not something that's being missed or may have changed throughout that process. So since we have established that you are all our official sleep doc, (laughs) (laughs) share one of your favorite habits to get a good night's sleep. (laughs) (laughs) So honestly, I think my favorite habit, if I were to say, you know, what is one thing that just can set you up for success? Mm -hmm. Um, Establishing some sort of bedtime routine. Pick something that is a 20-minute process before you go to sleep at night and, you know, own that. Own that as your time to set up sleep. No matter what else is going on in your life, no matter how much you're stressed, no matter how chaotic your house is. Or what TV program you're watching. Yeah, exactly. You know, figure out, you know, what time it is that you need to go to bed to feel rested or what time you typically feel tired. And give yourself that 20 minutes before you get into bed to do something that is calming and internal and kind of focused on you. For me, that's reading. I, you know, as busy as I am, you know, in medical school and in Mm -hmm. residency, you know, I grew up an avid reader. It's very easy to say, well, you know, I have some emails that I should read. Or, you know, I have a medical journal or there's a new article that I've been wanting to read. But really setting up that time to say, you know, for 20 minutes, I'm going to do something that is not on a screen and that is something that I enjoy. Just gets your body into that mindset that says, okay, this is sleep time. This is your time to establish that healthy routine. But, you know, if one of us has insomnia or if someone in our house doesn't sleep well, then that's really when following these things really strictly becomes that much more important. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I think I just got a Ph.D. in sleep, which is awesome. (laughs) It is awesome. So, ladies, for those of you struggling to get enough sleep or get enough quality sleep, do not worry. There are a lot of things you can do to help yourself out. And to sum up Dr. Green's top five tips for a better night's sleep, I call it the sleep doc. It's one, establish a routine and stay consistent. Be disciplined with that routine. Have a general bedtime. Wake up every day at the same time, even on weekends. You also want to exercise regularly. That's number two, just in case you're counting. Number three is watch your caffeine intake and avoid that caffeine pretty much after noon, right? And then, of course, four, unplug from blue light devices at least 30 minutes to an hour before bedtime. And number five, expose yourself to that sunlight, that first sunlight. If you can't do it first, you just got to get outside and walk the block and then increase that to even further. You got to do that to help ensure your internal body clock stays healthy and preps your brain for sleep at the appropriate time of your routine. 
To follow up on today's episode, you can check out our show notes at uchealth.org forward slash every, spelled E-V-R-E. To find out more about today's expert, Dr. Katherine Green, you can visit uchealth.org. Thank you for joining us. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and iHeartRadio. To find out more about our subject matter today, you can visit us at uchealth.org forward slash every, spelled E-V-R-E. Every is produced by UC Health.